I wanted to understand the nature and the character of the divine in the human world, what, what that was and wasn't. I was handed what it was as a kid, and, and through kind of the growing up process, Mexico, my brothers and sisters, um, some other you know friendships, events, books, I began to say, oh, I was, I was raised in a, I was raised in a backwatered outpost of thought in some ways, of folks that were so afraid so afraid of their own lives, their own shadows, their own sense of being out of control. Um, or, and, and religion promised them this, um, this container of both um, security but also constriction. And moving out of that, there was such liberty for me. Hello and welcome. I've been uh, I've been sick. <laughs> I got that uh, one of my children has brought back. She seems to be fine, but, <laughs> but whatever it is manifested in me in a way that has uh, <laughs> made things a bit uncomfortable. But the show must go on. So uh, I've been really excited to bring this conversation um, to you. A couple of things. I'll be brief today. Today's conversation is with uh, the Reverend Dr. Matt Russell. And if it's not challenging in some way, then you're not paying attention. So, <laughs> and because uh, we kind of hit all the all the buckets, uh, none, well, not all, a, a lot of good buckets to be challenged. And it, it brings up a thought for me, which is the, um, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Uh, Freud was talking about how the, the personality is really kind of built around defense mechanisms. And Jung went a different route and said that there are these uh, autonomous bundles of intrapsychic energy that kind of take us over uh, whenever we're, you know, quote, triggered. He called them complexes, structures of the psyche that, um, again, operate pretty autonomously. So when you feel jealousy or anger, it, it kind of takes you over. And later on you say, oh, my gosh, you know, who was that? <laughs> um, similarly, you know, um, Freud was getting at defense structures that um, protect. So... I say that because I kind of want to out what I, I, I certainly struggle with, which is kind of my own defenses or my own complexes that that show up in challenging conversations. And uh, one of the great things about those events, um, they can be uncomfortable, but there's also a lot of liberation when we begin to 
kind of talk to those parts of ourselves and, uh, and, and look at them, really look at what, what we're defending against and how those defenses may, um, or, or complexes may empower us or, and how they may limit us. Because uh, they're not, they're not bad. I'm not, I'm not, these things aren't to be avoided. They're, they're to be dialogued with, to be um, communicated with. And uh, oftentimes that's the opportunity that many of us miss out on because they, they, the, the psyche communicates uh, meaning oftentimes uh, through pain. You know, uh, the most powerful and profoundly meaningful events in our lives are oftentimes accompanied with some degree of psychological suffering. So I, I, I want to plant that because... I mean, I hope this this entire project is challenging, but um, this conversation uh, is is simultaneously one of the most um, funny conversations and also uh, challenging. Matt has a <laughs> an enormous gift uh, in dialogue and also just reflecting on his life and what matters to him. So we, at some point, we go into, uh, I, th- I think, well, let me detour for a second. As a psychotherapist, I'm really used to hearing a lot of stories that people oftentimes don't share with, with others. And so that informs my worldview about what reality is in social spaces and um, what public life and personal life and private life can be about. And I can make certain assumptions about um, individuals and their public, personal, and private lives. And in a similar way, Matt connects with people and learns private aspects of their lives. So as we talk through um, our conversation today, kind of reflect and think on Kind of not only what you may guard against, but also how not having really in-depth conversations with people around you may influence your understanding of what people are carrying with them. Hence the reason when we come together uh, intimately as friends or as companions or as... uh, partners, oftentimes so much of the glue that creates the bonds is the willingness to share oneself, one's private self. Uh, so uh, there are a couple of stories that come up in the um, in this conversation that, uh, that are very real and bring up a lot of feeling. Be gentle with yourself. But f- full disclosure, there's a um, there's a story of, of sexual assault, and there are many uh, many stories. Matt's um, through his work is connected with people. I think that oftentimes don't share their story with others. So you get a little glimpse in this conversation into the kinds of narratives and stories that 
people may carry with them. that they only share with people that are truly paying attention and desiring to connect on a deeper level. Okay. So I want to read a bit of Matt's bio and then, uh, and then give you a little music and then we'll get started. Matt is currently on staff at St. Paul's United Methodist Church in Houston, Texas as the Senior Associate Pastor. He is the co-managing director of Project Curate, a social action and racial equity nonprofit. He's the executive director of Iconoclast Artists, a creative arts program in Houston and Galveston's urban schools that has over 600 weekly participants, and is assistant professor of recovery ministry at Fuller Theological Seminary. Prior to this, he was on the faculty at Duke Divinity School as a professor of practical theology and community development. In 2013, he completed a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Cambridge's Psychology and Religion Research Group, where he explored redemptive narratives and models of social justice movements rooted in religious communities. He received his Master's of Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary and completed his Ph.D. at Texas Tech University in 2010. His dissertation explored how women construct alternative narratives of redemption from years of sustained trauma and abuse. While at Texas Tech, he was the Associate Director at the Center for the Study of Addiction, responsible for the replication model of helping to establish collegiate recovery communities and campuses across the United States. From 1996 to 2008, he was the Associate Pastor of Houston's Chapelwood United Methodist Church and founding pastor of Mercy Street. He's married to his best friend, Michelle, and they have three crazy boys, <laughs> Miguel, Lucas, and Gabriel. And uh, I bet Matt's a fun dad. <laughs> okay, so this uh, we'll we'll get to the conversation soon. But I had the I had this insight with uh, with the music I've been playing, and certainly the first song and the 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 first tune that you heard is from a a uh, an album called Sour Soul. It's a collaborative studio album from Canadian jazz instrumental hip hop band Bad Bad Not Good and Wu Tang Clan member Ghost Faced Killer. It was released in 2004, uh, 2015 and is good. So my my the the music piece that I'm I find so rich in um as I'm preparing these episodes I get to listen to all this music. And and Bad Bad Not Good has been a band I've been listening to for a long time and they they really helped me get through my dissertation. So they've uh given me permission to use their stuff. And I want to set the mood a bit for this conversation with some of this uh with with one of the songs um, earlier you heard uh, a clip from one of the songs on um, the album, Sour Soul. And this next song is called Nuggets of Wisdom. And it's uh, from that album. And I think, I think its purpose here is to set the mood. So let's, uh, let's do some mood setting. And then uh, I'll, uh, I'll say a few words and then we'll get started. Full 
God, he powers my soul, teaching me positivity in the whole, how to walk amongst the evil and smile in the face of death, to speak knowledge and wisdom to my last breath, I'm a humble brother, got love for another, body heat is what keep you warm under the covers, make peace, not war, make baby some more, keep a smile when you travel from shore to shore, superficial, don't get sucked into the scene, the grass ain't always green, the meat ain't always lean, make sure it's allowed, no pork in the fork, no swine in the cupcake filling, we know it's pork, keep your Quran handy, keep it close to your heart, see the dumbest far from smarter, spark a light in the dark, follow me, I'ma pray till the sun shines over me, pray to the righteous ways that's taking over me. Consider the mood set. So I want to extend an enormous amount of gratitude to Matt. Thanks for sitting down with me. And uh, and thank you for everybody who's been involved in this project. Um, the and, and thank you to all the musicians that are kind enough to uh, to let me use their material. You can look up uh, on this, on the website, thesacredspeaks.com, you can find all the links. You can find music videos, songs, participant bios, websites, um, the conversations. And, um, and you can also, in the liner notes, whether it's on iTunes or um, no matter Spotify or Google Play, wherever you find this podcast, you can find all the information about each episode and people that are involved. I try to do my best to include all the links in those, so go check that out. Again, that's thesacredspeaks.com. The theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And for uh, Matt, you can reach him at projectcurate.org or stpaulshouston.org. Then for Ghostface Killer, you can find him at Facebook. And Bad Bad Not Good is at badbadnotgood.com. There is a link to the iTunes page for this album. I highly recommend buying it. And in fact, I highly recommend buying all the music. (laughs) In a bit, I'm going to be talking to a guy about kind of the digital world of free, free everything. And, uh, we're going to kind of deconstruct that. So I, I, I highly recommend, <laughs> strongly urge everybody to buy the music. And really, if you can, go to the, go to the band's website and uh, buy their stuff there. Okay. 
I think that's it. I'll leave it there and bring you the conversation. Thank you for listening. Thanks for sitting down with me. This is cool. Got it. The thing, as I was saying earlier, you know, and, and just so anybody listening can realize that what a brave soul is sitting with me on the couch. I, you know, we've talked for all of like 15 minutes. You know, I literally gave you 30 seconds of what I wanted to talk about. Brave and ignorance. Yeah. Maybe really sisters. It's here. blissful here. So the, the, we're, we're going to... Um, we're going to meander a bit sure and uh and struggle with some things hopefully because mm. i think that's mm. that i'm not saying it's comfortable but i think it's fun to yes to struggle through the muck mm. um it's it's funny you know as i was reading your your work uh, i'm thinking about narrative and obviously you've done a lot of thinking about this so i want to get into some of that and I, I almost found it interesting that we were talking, you know, you're writing about a redemptive narrative and we'll, we'll talk about this, but um, you're writing about a redemptive narrative and I'm laughing at, in, in my mind, I'm thinking about how really the first thing I want to ask you is what's your narrative? Hmm. You know? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I think I, you know, I've, I've done that with, uh, with everybody. I just, hmm. I, you know, I, I think it's important to, to get to know you, but to also find out mm. kind of what, what's fueling some of your interests. Mm. Mm. Uh, so, you know, again, you be the, the breaks here, but where does all this kind of, if you, yeah, maybe we start there, right? Would you introduce yourself a bit to people listening? I will have said something in the intro, okay. but if you'll introduce yourself a bit and then let's go into however far back you want to go about kind of what, what forces have been at work in, creating you hmm. wow um i am on your couch aren't i yeah this is <laughs> you're on the freaking couch man yeah people don't realize that just so i can set the table real quick and that's been a brave soul in coming to my therapy practice and we're both sitting on the couch together it's good though i'm not in the chair yeah and i, I haven't laid down yet so we'll, we'll see. you can if you see how want long to. it takes for me we'll to... really start picking you apart in a second <laughs> that's great yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting when I think about narrative because um, in some ways, like that's how we know each other is through our own stories. And so when I when someone asks us or we ask someone else and we get to know them, it's it's our story that we tell. Yeah. And so who we are, our identity, all that is deeply embedded within our own story. And that's changing all the time. We revise it. We think through it. It it has it has different meaning in the second half of life than it does in the first. Mm -hmm. It has different meaning when you're closer to an event than we are farther away. <clears throat> and so, um, and then there's so much of our life stories that we leave on the cutting floor when we're telling, telling it. Right. Um, and so, yeah. um, I think a lot of my, a lot of my, at least the, if I, if I reach back really deeply into kind of my family history stuff, you know, um, it would be my uh, my mother really the, probably had the most profound impact on my life from the vantage point I'm sitting at today. Mm. Um, she was she was really an amazing woman, um, a teacher, classics teacher, um, uh, taught herself Greek so she could read uh, both the New Testament in the Greek and the Iliad. And she was just I, I never got up earlier 
than her. I'd, I'd come down in the morning and she would be uh, reading Greek and Hebrew, um, just that she taught herself that so that she, so she was a learner. Wow. And so I grew up in a house where um, the questions, uh, at least from her, were always present. She was really interested in questions and, and uh, those things that framed us. Um, she was diagnosed with brain cancer when she got sick when I was 13. And a lot of that started to change. Um, she, she was diagnosed with brain cancer about five years after that. Um, and uh, in, the, in, the, in the city I grew up in, in Dallas, um, a, a suburb of Dallas, uh, it was quite, uh, I grew up in a quite religious home. Um, and so um, the religion that I grew up in, the form of Christianity I grew up in had an answer to all of the problems, you know, it just pulled the lever and the answer dropped out and, oh, it's because there's unconfessed sin, you know, or whatever. Um, and so early on, I began to have a, um, really there was a there was a pull away from me in terms of easy answers within religion. I gave myself to that for a long time, um, but knew that it was, um, knew that there was a space uh, that I couldn't go. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't swallow it. Um, at least not the answer. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't go there. Um, um, and so I watched, um, my brother, sister and I, um, uh, kind of bound together and took care of my mom. My dad traveled uh, a lot and had a, was freighted with some of his own issues that, um, didn't allow him to be very present. And, uh, and so my sister, brother, and I kind of just surrounded my mom and took care of each other and took care of her. And, and then we ended up putting each other through college, uh, kind of made a pact with each other that, that uh, we were going to support each other through college, which we did. And um, What do you mean by that? Well, um, I stayed home um, and went to junior college, and um, my sister went to UT, and we supported her while she went to UT, and then we flipped it all around. We just made sure that, um, that we were going to, we weren't going to get stuck. It was going to be real easy to kind of get stuck in kind of caregiving and making sure the house was afloat. Um, but we made a pact that we weren't going to get stuck there. Uh, not, um, not working kind of just, um, in, in jobs that kept our nose above the water that didn't have a lot of life in it because that was kind of the most convenient thing to do in the uh, culture I grew up in. Um, and so my brother, sister and I are still really, deeply close talk all the time and um, um, but out of that um, out of that kind of I think my mom's illness growing up through really junior high and high school uh, and wrestling and contending with the problem of pain and suffering and religion and middle-class suburban life and all of those kinds of things really kind of framed my outlook and towards um, what I would struggle with for the next 15 or 20 years um, and so uh, both personally and psychologically and, and I think then even professionally and socially, you know, mm -hmm. what I was what I was wrestling with um, um, and um, ended up um, spending a summer uh, in Mexico City when I was in my undergraduate uh, and worked with a church there at a it was on a, um, a spring a spring break trip. Um, but part of that work we did was with Mother Teresa's group of nuns in an orphanage. And something grabbed me. And, um, and so that 
that summer, I got a call from somebody there saying, hey, would you think about coming down and doing an internship? And so I ended up um, quitting school and moving down for more than a summer. And I, I worked in this orphanage with uh, the Sisters of Mercy and then um, at this, um, this local um, this local church, but it was in the it was in the work with these nuns um, that were it was literally it was in Santa Fe in Mexico City that was right next to a trash dump, and I was working with the infants that they were pulling out of the trash dump um, um, every week um, because of um, physical um, handicaps or abnormalities, uh, um, and it had a massive impact on my life. Um, just being in that setting with these folks that were living a common life together, but also life that was deeply um, in what it appeared to me as futile service to the world, right? I mean, it was just, it was, they were giving themselves to, um, to something um, that was, um, seemed so fragile, but also so far beyond them. And I had never been around that Um you know, I've never, I'd never been exposed to that. I didn't have language for that at that point. Uh, most of my religion up to that point was uh, really about a, an evacuation plan out of the world, not a givenness deeply to the, um, uh, the suffering or the present reality of the world. Um, so let me, let me rewind real quick because mm. I want to, I want to return to this because there's a lot there, I think. Um, just to talk a little bit about your the, the, the religion of your early mm. life, and we'll think kind of in stages, right? So zero to ten, yeah. right? What what does religion mean to you, mm. a young a young Matthew? Yeah, so I, I, um, religion is really determined by your zip code, isn't it? Um, and so um, the zip code I was living in, religion was Christianity, and it was a type, a form of Christianity that was solidly uh, uh, middle class uh, um, to lower middle class. It was deeply evangelical that listed towards a fundamentalism of kind of a biblical inerrancy and literalism. Um, and it was, it was a cocoon that was to protect you from the world. And the world was evil. Uh, what we were trying to do is not be evil, whatever that was. And so there was all these categories of what was in, who is in and out, and who is good and bad. And um, and so for me, religion at that point, as a little guy, was really just wanting to be a good person to go to heaven. And then when my mom um, became ill, it was really trying to be a good person so that maybe that would affect her physical um, status. Right? So you. As a young guy, you felt that your behavior oh. could influence your your mother's sickness. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, when I look back on that. I've been in a lot of therapy, yeah. <laughs> you know. Right? I mean, there was, but but there was a that was a whole substructure of a religious. Um, um, way of being. So it's whether it's uh, whether it's the. Um, the Pharisees that come and ask Jesus, tell me who sinned that this man be born blind. Was it his parents who sinned? You know, so there there was a, a root system of that kind of questioning within kind of religious apparatus that was present within the uh, my own upbringing. Where's the culprit? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, if if bad things are going down, 
you know, uh, somebody must have done something to deserve this, you know. Now that is, I mean, I, I look back on that now and I think, how suburban can you get? You know, how suburban does religion have to get to ask those kinds of questions? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't play out anywhere except the suburbs. You know, I mean, it doesn't in Rwanda. It can in Auschwitz. It can't in the Congo. It can't with, you know, uh, victims of, uh, of heinous crimes or rape or, you know, uh, abuse, yeah. trauma. So, but I think in a, in a place where there's a, a deep desire and lack of meaning, um, where consumerism is set at the center, there is a lot of um, there's a lot of our own kind of sense of what it means to be human that that is um, contestable. Um, I don't want to go too far mm. afield, but I, I, maybe we plant the seed, but maybe mm. we go down this rabbit hole for a second. Mm. You're just mapping on economics and religion. Yes. Yeah, um, and y- so y- from from your now, adult perspective, you're mm. looking at that saying that there is something related economically and the particular religion. Is that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what do you mean by that? Um, well, I mean, I, I see that now is that, I mean, that that the best part of a religious um, um, maybe expression decouples a lot of the things that we've coupled together as a culture, as a society, and it asks fundamental questions of equity. It asks fundamental questions of, um, of value, right, uh, across the board. Um, there's other expressions of, of religion that says if you couple these things together, if you're good, there's economic, physical gain to that. And you know if you are um, walking in, quote-unquote, you know, the right way if these good things are happening, right? Um, this is Rabbi Kushner's question. Why do, you know, why does bad things happen to people? Well, and, yeah, and this is a, um, this is ca- causality. Yes. Is, is what we're, we're, and so we're talking yeah. about a religious structure that actually, you know, can, can guide you into salvation by telling you what yeah. you shouldn't do, yeah. but it also damns you if you're, it damns you either not, way. <laughs> it really, you know, and, and it's very, is, is what it, yeah. but it's also, I mean, it's sociologically, it's a structure for, for, um, for deep security uh-huh. and assurances. And, and it's a system that promises that, um, right? Because to be naked in the world without a system that is somehow comes with a chart of why, um, uh, is terrifying to people. Yeah, and and to be clear, we're really talking about fundamentalism right now. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. And see, because sometimes I almost want to mm. to separate because fundamentalism shows up everywhere, everywhere. You know, yeah. it's it's it, it's I think it's a human condition that has something more to do with what you're saying regarding fear and the the search mm. for certainty, and it'll show up in economics or politics yes. or you know it'll show up in yeah. courts um but it'll certainly show up in religion mm. <clears throat> well okay so let's um when when does religion the, the kind of fundamentalism that you were growing up in when does it start to shift mm. I, I think that in some ways it was always shifting there's something in me that you know even as a kid, when when things were being said, I thought those guys in the suits, and they were always guys, <laughs> you know, <laughs> those guys in the suits. I don't know about that. 
right? And so I don't think it was until one, I was in Mexico City um, um, and, and that much, seeing that much pain, but also coupled with that much joy and freedom that I began to wonder what the heck is going on. They're asking fundamental, uh, fundamentally they're asking different questions. Um, and then as, as always, um, broadening the perspective by reading, you know, by, by understanding that I live in this massive world of, of, of variant thought and experiences and, and the invitation not to, to, to wander from home, um, wander, you know, to, to open up the front door and walk out and, um, to realize that in so many ways after I left my front door, that system doesn't work. It's, uh, it, it just, it can't, you know, um, there, there has to, you, you have to kill too many people for that to work, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, so let's, uh, let's slow it down mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm interested in going into this, this particular stage where you are wondering, mm. uh, what are you thinking about and what are you feeling? Mm. What, what, you know, kind of just to paint this picture, like what's your fantasy about what's going to happen when you go to Mexico? What's the reality once you get there? What are some experiences that happen mm. along the way? It's a lot, but yeah, I think I, I don't, my fantasy was just to leave home to kind of get away. Um, and, and there was, a, I had a desire. There's felt like that there's something there for me. I still, when I go to Latin America, I feel at home there and I don't know why, hmm. you know, um, um, what but were you I, leaving? Um, I was leaving constriction. I was leaving the inability to ask questions. I was also leaving a lot of, um, of comfort. There's this, this deep sense that my life was meant to be comfortable, right? I was, um, I was to be bathed in kind of this middle-class comfort and have enough and go on vacations. And, you know, these things that I was struggling with as a young kind of 20-year-old of what was my life to become, you and know. All the while, your, your mother is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it, it doesn't make sense to me even in some ways. I mean, so I, I saw this deep discomfort at home, but then you have this like massive institutional religion and culture within kind of middle class society that's saying, you know, this is an, uh, um, you may have to struggle with this, but you can become, um, you can become much more comfortable, you know. Uh, and so I think the part of part of me in the material world was struggling with who am I? What does this mean? How do I make sense of this? My my mom's um, illness, uh, and I think being in Mexico allowed me to see a gr that the world is suffering. There is a deep lament that happens all over the world. It wasn't just in my home in on Lakeland Drive, right, where um, where there is a projection outside of that world that everything's okay, everybody's okay. And when you when I moved outside of that, I began to see a deep, a deep lament that happens all over the world. And there was something deeply comfortable and comforting to me about that, right? When you show up into a place where it's it's uh, where tears come easy because there's some you know it's okay to cry about the pain and suffering, uh, but also there's this joy that's like uh, that's very tangible. And earthy with it, with these uh, uh, the folks that we were that I was working with, um, it was it was it was profound for me to be there, 
and to um, to really um, to give myself to a in some ways just a rule of life for you know four or five months, which was just in the morning waking up and eating and taking care of these kids and making runs to this trash dump and eating together for lunch and you know it was it was just kind of rule of life where suffering was um, was woven through, but it wasn't the only conversation, right? And the question was never why, right? It was never why. It was, it was always, the response was always this physical movement towards and this embrace of, which I found to be, um, still today, to be deeply helpful. So, uh, do you recall, I mean, because my, my fantasy is that you're going to work with these nuns and they are, what you're very quickly learning is that there are people who are dropping their newborn infants mm. in the dumpster. Yeah. To, to be, ostensibly to be picked up by the nuns is that um not all of them were picked no i mean um some of them would be dropped off close to the to the orphanage but um th so santa fe at the time it's now become a suburb um, um of cuernavaca but um it, at the time it was it was really the the refuse it was a delta of refuse out of mexico city Right. And so, I mean, just massive poverty. And so you have an economic system that when a child is born deformed in any way, it's just too much burden on the family. So what do you do? You can't feed it. It's unsustainable. It's going to take resources that other parts of your family need. Right. And so these kids and but you can't you can't in some ways um, you can't kill this child. Right. And so we found that people were in some ways almost in an offering sense, you know, to God, I don't know what to do, right? Um, there was a, a, a lot of desperation. Yeah. Um, so much that I don't know where to put that today. You know, there's just, um, it's it seems like an unspeakable truth. Yeah. When I, I just can't imagine what, to come from the everything is certain and when bad things happen, it's because you did something bad. <laughs> right. I can't imagine what was that, going on. In that whole head. paradigm just kind of just got blown up. Yeah. Right. It was just like, oh, and there was there was such liberty for me at that point. That's why um, from there I I um, I went to seminary not because I w I felt like I was called to be a priest or a pastor. I wanted to understand the nature and the character of the divine in the human world. What what that was and wasn't. I was handed what it was as a kid uh, and through kind of the growing up process, Mexico, my brothers and sisters, um, some other, you know, friendships, events, books, I began to say, oh, I was, I was raised in a, I was raised in a backwatered outpost of thought in some ways of folks that were so afraid so afraid of their own lives, their own shadows, their own sense of being out of control, um, or and and religion promised them this um, this container of both um, security but also constriction. And moving out of that, there was such liberty for me. I didn't know um, how to make sense of it, and so seminary was a place for me to at least begin to read and to ask questions and to contend with theodicy, um, all those kinds of things. Um, so, Did you have freedom to feel 
when you were a kid? Did you mm. express yourself? So um, as we talked about this just briefly I, on the Enneagram. I'm a I'm a seven, so I'm a thinker, you know. Um, <laughs> and my spiritual director, who is this wonderful Catholic nun, um, I call her an ass kicking nun. She's just <laughs> she is brutal and beautiful. She said, "Matt, intensity is not a feeling." <laughs> <laughs> Like really? <laughs> so I, I think, <laughs> uh, That's good. and as as uh, as the universe would have it, uh, I am my partner is uh, lives out of her own deep emotions, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and so I think um, in being with her, she's it's like Hansel and Gretel. I mean, she's kind of led me back to a gut. Of, of emotions that have been there. I just have not known what to do with those in some ways, you know, and, and I've worked things out in my head too much more naturally than I do. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, yeah, I've, I've grieved. I think lament has been a big part of my own uh, life. Um, and as a practice, it's a spiritual discipline. I think in, in the West, we do not, we don't lament enough. You know, we, we don't, we don't pause. There's not, I, I think a lot of psychopathology is around our inability to actually lament um, deep loss in our life. Um, Ian Krebb, who is a, um, who's a great um, analyst and, and writer, uh, wrote a book called The Importance of Disappointment. Mm. Um, and in that book, he's kind of suggesting there's a deep necessity of us kind of holding um, and containing those things. Yeah, we try to inoculate yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and keep us from. Yeah, I mean, this is a weird. I, I I don't know. I don't want to get too feeling based, but there's a certainly a. As we, you know, progress, we tend to more and more, find more and more ways to anesthetize. Yeah. The potential for loss. Mm-hmm. I think of Winnicott, who talks about mm-hmm. um, um, the, the the ways that mothers become deeply attuned to uh, their the sound of their babies crying, and that there are different sounds that that baby makes in sadness and in crying, and that mother can quickly pick up if that is about injury or if it's about hunger or if it's about discomfort, right? Um, and, and I think that we could do a much better job relationally picking up the sounds of lament from each other uh, in, 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 in our own lives and in, in offices like your, you know, that we listen for the particularities of people's stories where they're lamenting um, because it, you follow that back and there's a, there's a, there's a wounded experience there mm. that's, uh, that's, uh, that's needing to be heard needing to be not solved yeah absolutely yeah 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 that's good okay so take us through so you are in mexico <laughs> a young guy experiencing things that i just like yeah i mean babies and dumpsters f- 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 there from suburbia that's a shock <laughs> yeah that's yeah. shocking yeah uh, you spent a year there a little less less yeah, yeah. then what happens next because you left school I did. Um, 
um, I came back and finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, after that, I, um, I made my way to California. And um, that's where I became really interested in um, engaging with, I kind, of, I, I kind of either needed to leave religion at that point, but I needed to contend with it before I left it. Um, you know, and so I was on my way of breaking up with the whole thing, <laughs> you know, but I needed to really think through the categories that I was given as a kid, that my, my culture, that, that, uh, that America handed me, right? These, uh, these categories that just said, this is what it means to, um, be a, be a, be a man, be a human, have meaning, you know? Um, and so, um, and partly I had to do that out of the story that I was given of Christianity. And so um, my, my movement towards seminary was really to do that, to, to struggle, to contend with, to ask those questions. So, so um, I'm interested. What, when you were in this kind of pre, um, you know, say pre-early 20s, what would happen if you made mistakes in life? What was that narrative, right? If you... Oh. If you made big mistakes. Well, so the the dominant feeling was one of shame, deep shame, right? There was, uh, it was, and and that took, that took a long, that's taken and still, I mean, that's, I think about the, you know, the epiphenomenon of, of the, these early, early structures that, that we are born with, you know, given to, um, and it's, it's, it takes a long time to, um, to befriend those structures in such a way that they break open into something else, right? Um, and so, um, to 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 leave that there there was a lot of shame. There's a lot of fear. There was you know because um, that that structure promised uh, a way forward in a way that was you know um, that was. Um, in some ways, it, 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 it was like a train on a on a on a on a track, you know. Um, at, at that stage, right, in this kind of we'll call it fundamentalist stage, mm-hmm. what was heaven? What was the image oh, of that? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, heaven had an ontology to it, right? I mean, it was streets of gold. It was you know, I mean, all that stuff, right? I mean, it was that, that was in a fundamentalist structure that you're growing up in. I mean, it was there was heaven and there was hell. Right, I mean, those were places, right? Uh, so, and what happens in hell? Oh, come on now, that's just that's some bad shit, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's uh, I mean, I mean, this when I look back on this, it's nutty. Um, and I don't, I don't want to uh, denigrate folks that are holding on to that, but for me, I look back on that and I think, oh, you know, that's um. Uh, yeah, the hell was a place that pe- that people uh, went if if they mad- made bad choices. So the question I always ask myself around this kind of you know, can I lay down now? Yeah, on the yeah. Couch? On the- <laughs> I think we're going there, dude. <laughs> when you did it work? Did you know? Does that does that yeah, kind right. of duality or the, no? The, the, no, of course not. Yeah. No, because our our own humanity can't contain it. We have to become, we have to become something. Our own humanity resists at a at a primary level to make that work, right? We we have to almost become, we have to dehumanize our own self and others for that system to work. No, it doesn't work. 
Yeah, I mean, that's been my struggle is that we've had a long time to run our experiments on heaven and hell. And yeah. if, 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 if to posit that reality uh, is effective, and I think the, I think the judges have answered, you know, it, it's pretty ineffective, although what it does do is create a lot of internal shit and yeah. then we act out of that. Yeah. Shame, essentially, what we're... Yeah. Yeah. And and hell was the first um, casualty, you know, in that. I mean, I had to give that up. And it wasn't too far out long after that heaven had to be given up, right? I mean, I just... Okay, so I'm hooked. You know. Tell me about that. What happens when... What do you... What what's that struggle about when he hell is going like what's your self-talk there? Oh, and you know, um I mean some of that it just became like, oh, that's that's a human structure that really um keeps people in line. Um it's a uh, it's when I think about if if I'm given to a divine love that is uh ubiquitously given to the world at some with you know that's 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 uh that's experienced between people hell as a ontological place I, I there's not a there's not a place for that I, I don't know what to do with that you know um i don't know what that would look like or exist and 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 i really do think for me at least in, where where i've come to today is that my my religion isn't a va an evacuation plan for the faithful. It's to put me in the only place that I can be, which is in the world, in the present moment, given to the structures of the world, um, and the only way that I can see to be uh, to be given to or to give, right? Um, and so, in my own story, um, Jesus becomes a central. Um, um, type of um, person, uh, almost uh, almost an archetype of how you then live authentically given in love to the world, right? Um, um, and so I think giving up heaven and hell has been, um, there's been deep liberty in that for me. Yeah, I think liberation would be the, yeah. the word that comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. So you just offered almost um, well, it is not not a not a destination or a reward oriented philosophy, but a relationally based absolutely um, absolutely yeah. Without um, without categories, I think about the um, uh, my my friend and uh, Father Gregory Boyle out in Los Angeles who runs Homeboy Industry, who talks about in his book, Tattoos on the Heart, this idea of, of you know, imagine a circle, <laughs> you know, um, that no one stands outside of, mm. right? I mean, that's, that's whatever love is, whatever we're to be given to in um, our religious structures is to imagine a world that no one stands outside, that deep circle of compassion, tenderness, Right, and so God is known, divinity is known, um, whatever that spark is, no, is known um, um, only in relationship. Um, it's given to in relationship. It's the breadcrumbs that lead us back to those things. So, yeah, it's uh, quite different than the duality of heaven and hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just, I feel I want to return to where we are right now because yeah. I, I almost want to 
Pulp Fictionist for a second, or sure. Tarantino. <laughs> you know? Let's get let's get present day for a second because okay. you're you're doing some really cool stuff now, and mm. I think maybe my the idea here is that let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now, okay. and then link back up with okay. seminary. Sure. Because your yeah. your hands are in a lot of different pots. Yeah. Yeah. What are you up to? <laughs> Um, so I'm a I'm a pastor at uh, at St. Paul's United Methodist Church, uh, just a stone's throw from your office, mm-hmm. and uh, an associate pastor there. So I um, I preach every week in the 9:45 service, and uh, um, and I, I love that. Uh, I I teach it uh, I teach at Fuller Seminary in the uh, in in theology and ministry, and mainly in issues around recovery. Um, um, my dissertation was around trauma, women and trauma. So I have a deep interest in that. And then, um, began to, uh, you know, the gospels ended up wrecking me, you know, cause if it's not about getting to heaven, whatever that is, you know, if it really is about being given to the world, um, in a way that, um, in some ways sees an upside downness about it, where those that are on the margins are central, where, um, where those that um, that because of where they were born, they are saddled with so much more that we are to attend to that and to to somehow be in relationship uh, with with those that are suffering, um, not not to pull them up necessarily, but to be in relationship, to let that have its own um, uh, its own alchemy. Uh, to it. That's interesting that you're saying not to pull them up out of it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what that pull towards is, right? So there's a, a deep sense of privilege when you talk about that, that movement, even, even thinking about what I just said, the margins. Well, it, it, uh, I don't know very many poor people, um, that would necessarily narrate their story that they're you know, they could tell you about living under an oppressive, uh, system where people are making choices that they are um, they're the benefactors of decades of choices, you know, and so the margins are this kind of conceptual space that really have to do with our collective unconscious choices that we make that benefit other people, whether they live five miles from where I'm sitting or they live five thousand miles, and I I just think that we can reimagine a world differently, where our social uh, relationships can operate uh, differently. And I, I think that's what, at least um, the way I understand my own story of Christianity calls me to at least um, that set of questions or those sets of relationships or that set of the way I'll spend my life. Um, so we in the city right now, we've, we, um, we started two nonprofits a couple of three, four years ago. One of them is um it's called iconoclast and it's uh, working with uh, it's a creative writing program that uh that um that we started is now in 20 schools and four lockdown units and it um it's really an, um, an amazing program there's a gentleman by the name of uh, marlon Azama and then uh, tori harris uh, our program directors who they're poets and they're just amazing people that work with the with students so some of the question i was asking as a pastor um because i grew up in a youth group and everybody in my youth group looked like me you know so youth groups mm-hmm. were really about um how do we take care of the members kids 
And and you know, and and so when I when I come to this this person that Jesus who just seems like this, I mean, they killed that motherfucker because not because he was handing out Big Macs and being nice to people, right? I mean, he was asking some serious questions about social structure, about equity, about what choices were being made by people in power that were having um, definitive um, um, consequences to people that uh, were um, were standing uh, underneath that power, right? And so some of that is then, I, I, I use that word imagination, some of that is then to imagine what would it look like? Um, where, are, where are kids? If we had to start from scratch, where are kids today? They're in schools, you know? How do we, how might we think about a world of equity for those kids? And so um, the the folks that I'm working with, Iconoclast, are doing that. We've added a social and emotional component to that. We're, we've got a scholarship fund. We're in deep relationship with uh, a number of these kids. It's just great. Mm. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. That's great. And uh, I want to return to your commentaries on power and mm. social structure also. Mm. Let's, um, let's, let's go to second nonprofit. Yeah. It's called Project Curate. And that has much more to do with systemic issues around equity and race um, and, um, and how we build a different, how we begin to think about that in the city of Houston and, and really broadly speaking in, in cities and in the West uh, to understand our own history of privilege and, and how we might uh, build a collaborative way forward um, towards something different, you know, and so uh, we we take folks through kind of a cohorted process of 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 understanding city, understanding kind of privilege, understanding uh, uh, where people live, move, and have their being in the city, and then begin to ask questions about why divisions exist, why architecture exists the way it does in Houston, what that architecture represents in the form of highways that divide neighborhoods and the way that um, transaction is really the only way that we might get to know folks in a different socioeconomic um, placement that we are. We sit around Houston and say, we're the most diverse city in the nation as we talk with people that look like us and are educated like us, but it's not an inclusive diversity, right? Right. Um, and so there's something about that inclusion um, that, that has captivated me. I'm deeply curious about um, would you would you make that applied for a sec? For example, like what what are some examples of things that you've done with this mm. with this group about you know dividing lines? Oh, you know, as, as, um, when Curate was starting out, one of the things we we did is we we um, invited folks from different parts of the city that would never meet each other, and and I there was this deep sense that if we could create a context where improbable friendships could exist, that um, we might be onto something in, the, in that context. If we could make this city smaller and begin to um, listen and befriend each other in that listening, what might happen out of that? Um, and so five years on, there's really these issues of power that have come up. There's these deep issues of inequity that have come up. Um, we, we um, last year, our cohort um, 
having done kind of two years looking at race, looking at privilege, particularly with um, with white folks, um, um, with the, the people of color that are um, in our cohort, in our community, beginning to ask the question of what does it look like to collaborate together in the city where there's a non-hierarchical powered structure, where we're decentering privilege and whiteness in some ways. So we're really asking those kinds of questions on a cellular level um, and, and on a s institutional level. And what would it look like for us then to do this kind of work together in the city? Um, How's the experiment going? Oh, it's it's messy and beautiful. Yeah. It, it, it is. Um, the la power does not want to give itself up. Uh, we see that um, <laughs> being displayed every day in our uh, in our government. We see this being displayed in our religious institutions, in our academic institutions. Power does not want to give itself up. But at the core of the way I understand Christianity is this word kenosis, this this Greek word that means to be give that means to be poured out to give. Right, Paul talks about this idea that that um, that Christ didn't um, um, climb to a place of status, but he gave himself um, to the world. So there's this deep sense in which power has to be given out. It has to be refracted. It has to be given back. It can't be um, uh, retained and held on to as status, because the only power that we have is in our relationships with each other. Um, that power um, has to be. Um, has to be uh, pushed away from us and put in relationships. But isn't it, doesn't power take on an energy of, of its own? I mean, mm. it's almost like the culture has to build in certain mm. means by which it can distribute that. Because, you know, I just immediately think of that old saying about power corrupting. You know, and, yeah. and so for either of us to think that we're incorruptible it would be an inflated... <laughs> narcissism that that right. um, is out of reality because then we would of course be beholden to the structure of power and we'd be overtaken by it sure so it, it, it seems like you're kind of swimming in these waters a lot mm. isn't that what we would have to do and therein lies one of the problems is to to kind of provide those structures those in power are the ones who are c cutting off the those movements to integrate structure that would distribute power more effectively. Mm. So um, it's 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 much like when uh, religion becomes a structure that then you have to serve in order to benefit from it, right? Whereas its very core, um, power dynamics, uh, rightly conceived, are ones of deep mutuality, um, um, and, and I'm thinking about kind of community building mm -hmm. um, in these these places, where when they become structured so much so that the structure then is um, is maintained and then defines the relationships, um, I think that's that becomes a corruptible place. Um, and so what we talked about earlier I, um, is that these are small these these have to be small batch experiments right now for us. Uh, um, um, I think that that if all politics is local, so is all theology, so is all economics, right? And so I'm 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 much more curious about how it's acting and um, being um, materialized in 
um, in the city of Houston, you know, in the in the relationships mm-hmm. I'm invested in, and then asking those broader questions. But um, but in some ways, it's it's almost like a refractal. I want to I want to figure out how do we create a world. Um, how, do, how am I a part of um, nurturing a world that I want to be a part of in the smallness of my own life today? And whatever that looks like, maybe it, that could exist in a, in, in, in a broader um, society and a culture, and right? Um, um, where we're asking about who's at the table, right? Um, um, who benefits from these decisions? Um, does it, um, Condi Rice said that, um, you tell me what zip code you were born in and I'll tell you the education you got. Um, to me, I think we can do better than that, right? Uh, we can, we can imagine a world that's different than that. Yeah. Um, and so some of that is that, that we have a crisis of imagination when it comes to our own social relationships and that what we are actually given, um, I think at least as Americans, um, at least I was given, is this security and assurance scheme that says if you do these things, whether it's religion, whether it's consumerism, whether it's maintaining kind of um, a, a you know a good credit rating, you know you are going to be okay. You put enough away, you're going to be okay. Right? And um, there's a deep individuality about that. I'm not saying that that needs to totally be blown up. I'm just saying who benefits from that. Um, and could we imagine a world differently um, in the way that we understand social relationships, our own life, um, love, re- religion? Yeah, it seems like we got to follow the money. Yeah. Follow the money. Well, in this, as you were talking, I, I, I was imagining how, you know, Christianity is, in, in, is one of those power structures. And, but it doesn't, to me, it doesn't sound like you're talking about the kind of Christianity that a lot of people are talking about when they talk about Christianity. Mm. So we're, yeah, there's, there's not even a, an agreed upon definition of terms. No. <laughs> people ask me, are you a Christian? And I'll say, you tell me what a Christian is and I'll tell you if I'm that. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause we, if we, I mean, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> It's really well, determined by where we've grown up. Yeah, you know, and what does it mean to you? Hmm. Wow. So th- I have been deeply in flux, right? I mean, I, I, um, um, so, so this story of Jesus, I can't get away from. It's my story, right? I mean, I, I, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's shaped my narrative, um, and and what I understand the um, maybe deeper meaning in the world. Yeah. And how, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you went there. Cause that's, that's one of the things that I, I, I think sometimes that is one of the ex, ex, exclusive aspects. You know, if you don't mm. understand this language, if you don't right. accept this thing and we can maybe get into a conversation about belief, but I, I'm, I don't know. Sometimes I really, I really st- struggle with some of that. Yeah. And what does that mean to you? So if I shut off the volume and I just watch where Jesus ends up. 
what does that yeah what does that mean what are you envisioning when you're talking about jesus ending up somewhere yeah so when i when i walk through the gospels and i see who jesus is attaching himself to uh the vulnerable uh women that are caught uh you know that are that are condemned um uh how he gets uh harangued and why he gets harangued i begin to see that um that that at some level there is this deep pushback from the status quo of um, of a system that would um, marginalize some and benefit others. Well, since we're going there so much, contextualize that real quick. What what is the system that you're referring to when Jesus was operating in that system? What was going on? I mean, I could talk about religious systems that do that now with. Um, um, you know, that did that with women and, and, and black folks or Latino, you know, I, any system that would somehow, um, denigrate based on, um, a powered structure that these are the folks that are going to be in power and these are the folks that aren't. Um, yeah. I, mean, I, I think that I can't, you know, back to your, your upbringing, I'm imagining if a lot of those folks could even imagine that babies are getting dropped off in a dumpster like can you really put yourself there or does are those are those the events that just get you know like a like i'm not focusing on the way the floor feels on my feet right now and i'm you know i'm just kind of it's forgotten it's left on this fringes well what happens in those and any system is that you don't you don't take the world seriously anymore so an economic system can create a world as it wants to see it. It doesn't take the full reality of the world. And what I think, um, at least what I'm seeing in the in uh, the way I read Jesus, mm-hmm. <laughs> is is a human being that's that's that is um, attempting at least to take um, the full reality of the world as it is, um, and not to um, explain it away. Right. And so in my upbringing, you know, uh, dead babies, well, you know, they're going to be in heaven. It's okay. You don't have to worry about that, you know. And so there's a whole way of dealing with suffering that actually um, perpetuates suffering. And that's why lament is so important as a spiritual practice. Um, that's why also joy is so important, you know, yeah. and deep relationality is so important because it's these earthy stuff that keeps our lives together. It's not. Um, I mean, I think I think Marx was right in a lot of ways. Is that uh, that religion can be an opiate, right? But so can consumerism. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, uh, th- there's lots of opiates that that end up anesthetizing my life so that I can live my life. And well, and to that point, I think it's uh, which is why I like these kinds of conversations. Is we're really kind of zeroing in on something mm-hmm. as opposed to just using these generalities right. like. Christianity or yeah, capitalism yeah. or whatever, yeah, yeah. but we're getting to look at some of the nuances within these systems and say, well, here's what may be effective and here's what it actually leaves outside of its vision mm. and creates part of the conflict that, you know, creates so much of the suffering. So do you, do you get into postmodernism and, mm. you know, are you into yeah. that world? Uh-huh. Because it seems to me that a lot of the critique of power structures 
tends to be that that kind of point where things start to break down and people will say like you guys always critique the power structures it's like mm. we've and, and and maybe fix this for me because i'm thinking about like what essentially it's saying is that throughout our lives we are products of our environment we adapt to the environment and we take on elements of that environment uh, but that's not necessarily us and we have to look at the way that kind of power and rules and authority play into the creation of the identity of the individual and therefore the collective. And I get that, but I think that that is where a lot of where the modernist and the postmodernists, Post yeah. you know, they go to battle because mm -hmm. they're saying like, I mean, this is where we get into the whole conversation about what gender is and, you know, right, right. what, you know, like that, yeah. that stuff that's making people's heads explode right yeah. now. Yeah. And I, I'm not meaning to be ins insensitive to the debate, but right. it, 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 that's certainly where the conflict is because yes. you've got one part of the debate that's saying this is kind of innate biology and the other that's saying, hang on, this is sociological and psychological. And now we're going to, we're going to battle. So can, what are your, where do you weigh in on this, right? What are your thoughts on, because and maybe we can kind of get there from exploring some of your dissertation with narrative, because mm -hmm. it seems like the, that's one thing I keep seeing in the postmodern literature about narrative and multiplicity and various messages. Right. So yeah, maybe let's go there. What, what was your dissertation about? So my, my dissertation explored a group of women um, out of a community that I was a part of in Houston called Mercy Street. Um, and these, uh, these women, um, they all, uh, they were a part of a, um, um, a halfway house and really a treatment center called the Santa Maria Hostel that was really the oldest treatment center for women in the state of Texas that it's kind of known as the last stop. It was known at the time as the last kind of chance recovery center for women uh, that had children. And so if a woman was picked up on drug charges, um, she would uh, could be remanded with her child to, um, to the Santa Maria uh, in lieu of state jail time, right? Um, and so uh, it kind of was known that this is, this is, this is your shot. If you can't get sober here and do this program and get straight, we're gonna uh, we'll take your child from you, um, and 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 you'll do long term prison time. Um, and so all those women started showing up at the community that I was a part of, um, and I got to know them really well. I uh, I ended up being kind of a character witness in a bunch of their trials, you know, um, or we created a, a scholarship fund for them to be able to go to school and kind of childcare so that they could uh, imagine a different economic situation for themselves, whether that was in, you know, certificate programs that they were doing or going to, to U of H or HCC. Um, and so I began to be really interested in how people change and sustain change because uh, growing up, I mean, you change by, you know, um, like this Pez dispenser kind of belief, believe Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and okay, let's get going. And it always has that Southern kind of you know accent to it when I think about it. I don't know why <laughs> that huckster feel to it, you know. But but here are these women, I mean, it, it's not it's it's not a it's not a real shocker how a middle class white guy like me 
has resources to change, you know. Um, but here is a woman, um, a, a woman of color, that is um, that's on the bottom rung of the ladder. You, out of necessity, many of them having to use their own bodies as commodities to put food on the table, um, um, and they have gone through this process where their life is different. I was really interested in that at a small story level, right? I, I understood words like redemption or regeneration or, you know, um, uh, psychological transformation, deep psychology, all these kind of, what I wanted to know was that at a cellular, like small story level, tell me your story. What changed when you were changing? How did you understand your own self-identity when it was changing? And, and I got really interested in that. And um, I couldn't find a, um, I was interested in that spiritually, but I, that, was, it was, that word was too freighted. It was too wounded in so many Spiritual? Words. Yeah, the spirituality uh-huh. meant that really it was going to be a step back from humanity, not a step into um, in the places I was. So I ended up doing my PhD in human development um, and did a narrative study of a group of these women's lives for three years. Um, and, um, and did, did, a I was, I was interested at early on, it, I was interested in drug and alcohol kind of issues. And as, after I did the first interview sequence with all these women, I was like, oh, their issue is not drug and alcohol, it's trauma. And so I studied trauma in women. So, so backing up real quick, when you say you did a, a PhD in human development, mm. what were you studying? Uh, um, so I don't, I don't know how people do PhDs. I know how I did mine. Right? I, <laughs> it feels like a, it's waterboarding at one point. But, yeah. uh, so I, it really became, I became curious. So my, my PhD started with a group of folks I was deeply curious about. Um, and, um, and I began just to have a lot of wonder about and wondered how do they, how do they live in this world? How did they become who they are, knowing who they, what they struggled with, and what they were given, right? Um, uh, to have to struggle with as um, early as children. And this may um, be my my linear mind. Mm. It, it, does this mean that you first were working with these women and started to see, and then you? Oh yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So, um, <laughs> so I, I went to seminary and and uh, came to Houston, Texas, from California, um, and uh, was at a uh, my first uh, my first appointment as a United Methodist pastor was at a local church where the pastor was this really incredible person, and he said, "What do you want to do?" I had read a lot of. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer at that point had been really interested in kind of a theology from below rather than from above. Like, what does it mean to be human? And how do we work? How far does the grace of God go? Is there a place that the grace isn't? That's that undid hell for me as an ontological space, right? Um, Hmm. And so, um, in my own theological understanding, when I realized that, at least in, in the New Testament, Peter says that Jesus descended into hell. Well, if Jesus has been to hell, quote unquote, then hell isn't a God-forsaken place, you know. And that gave me the permission to descend into my own 
um, hell, dashnikta, that which is nothing, that which is opposite of true being and and connection and being awake, whatever that, you know, um, hell is that space for me now as a literary, psychological, personal, physical device that says there's places we can go in our own humanity that create a place of non-being, right? And so these women, many of them had been, had lived there, um, had been had been brought there by other men. How do you define that non-being in this? Uh, oh, so I you know I don't know how to define it. I can tell you stories. Yeah, that's. Um, there is a there is a woman in my dissertation who um, was incested the first time as a eight year old by her father, um, and then by her brother, um, and she became an addict because her mother. Um, gave her Vicodin as an eight-year-old. So every time her father would have sex with her, um, um, her mother would take her to a drug drawer in their house in Bel Air um, and uh, would give her drugs. Her mother bought her a, um, she was a, she had blonde hair. Her mother bought her uh, a, um, a dark wig that she would have to wear when her father was having sex with her so he could disassociate her. Um, and so I don't know what hell is. That is non. That 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 is a place of such desperate um, desperation to me. That when she's sharing with me this story, that's hell. This little girl that had uh, uh, was subjected to a whole system. Um, um, and so um, that's that to me as a story is a story. Uh, of, of a physical happening in a person's life that's reality where a person would 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 be in relationship with his own daughter in this way that what is uh Sachs talks about the mutilated music of our life i mean these unspeakable truths the they're freighted with experiences that how do you speak of these things how do you speak um and so when she was telling me these things, I was the first man she ever told these things to, right? And 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 to, there's something sacred about that, as well as hellish to hear a person's, which, what she's holding. Um, I I don't know how to make sense of that still. They um, invited me into a space. And into stories that I will um, live in the rest of my lives and try to understand what it means to be human, how they um, how they um, became human out of that, not because of that <laughs> right? Uh, so it, it, it messed with my everything happens for a reason kind of bullshit. It, 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 it messed with my um, idea of God's uh, omnipotence. I mean, all that is just, you know, it keeps suburban people safe. You know, um, it doesn't stand up in the face of real life stories of people. Right. Um, and so that's that that's the god that's the love that's the christianity i want to understand in those stories right um 
not ones that get me out of those stories that put me in the middle of the or allow me to uh, um, um, to to understand life in the middle of those. Yeah, holding space. Yes. Because that's the place of shame. And then we keep we keep it in a shameful place, which prevents us from connecting with another person. Absolutely. And I think that that clicks there about non-being is that you don't. There's no there's no part of you that would ever imagine a world where you can reach out yeah. and connect with somebody else in a way that is loving and and will have it reciprocated yes. in a safe and loving way. And, and it, it also began to mess with my understanding of what it meant to be human. Like, you know, even from uh, Freud and Jung and Erickson, there's this understanding that there's a, a person in there in some ways. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, dialogical theories of the self are, you know, w- when I began to look at these, that, that were shaped by a cacophony of voices, Right. That that what part of you know this uh, this understanding of the true self, which I really can in some ways push back against. What part of the self was was that woman not you know, um, damaged by in in those experiences? Um, you know, um, uh, and so um, th- these the, these dialogical voices in our lives that shape us and that then somehow become regulatory voices that structure our identity, shape who we are, where we go, where we don't go, what we have access to, don't have access to in terms of our own psychological, social functioning. Um, I think the community has much to to bear witness to. And when we hand folks a religion that says, believe this as an antidote to um, the mutilated music of people's past, there's a sense in which there's such a disconnect that we, we offer somebody, um, it's ham-fisted, it's in, and it's, it's deaf. We don't listen. And so our, our spirituality has to be at least <laughs> as complicated as people's pasts are, right? Um, and we have uh, reduced religion and spirituality to a set of kind of bullshitty principles that, 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 that can be really reduced into memes. But, but those principles do not work um, in the utter desperation of people's stories. And so um, I'm very curious about a spirituality that works or that is present or does not work in those stories or doesn't exist in those stories. Well, I want to pick up here where you were writing about this Mm -hmm. in the redemptive narrative piece. Would you speak a bit about how that doesn't work here? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, um, when I think about when, when, when narrative or redemptive narratives are talked about, it really is this kind of whole structure of the way that we uh, understand our stories in our lives. And, and particularly in the West, our stories are shaped by a trajectory of, um, of a redemptive narrative. We love rags to riches stories. We love, I was this, now I became that. Um, so our stories aren't just um, created out of nothing. They're, they're in some ways we, 
piece them together by uh, the, what our culture gives to us, whether that's through literature or music or uh, our own kind of uh, um, our legacy of within our families. We're constantly piecing these things together, and our stories have a structure to them. And so usually um, a good story is one that has a narrative arc to it of continuity. And so I have to be able to look at, um, the particularly when I think about redemptive narratives, and you look at, um, say, for example, um, a person that was involved in a life of crime, they somehow have to make sense of the goodness they're experiencing today um, and link that to a, a spoiled past, right? And they, th so a good story is, is predicated on a continuity of being able to connect those two things. How am I supposed to understand this criminal, so to speak, that's, you know, that's telling me the goodness of today and I can see their rap sheet, right? Um, and so there's a whole way of kind of then narrating your past that says, you know, actually I was a diamond in the rough. Who you're seeing today is who I actually am. And in fact, um, I had to go through those things in order to become the person I am today. You see that as a religious narrative. You see that as AA narratives or, or recovery narratives. You see these as all certain types of redemptive narratives. So the, the cohesive sense of self is what we're yes. talking about here. So it's not, the narrative isn't, I'm not the same person. I don't even know who that was. There's no connection whatsoever other than the fact that I'm the same biological person. Or, or you put it in um, what, what uh, it's interesting what recovery does is you put it in the form of the addict. You give it a persona within yourself that is other than yourself, right? So the addict wants me to do these things, right? Um, and so you hear that all the, I mean, if, um, um, you hear that in recovery meetings quite a bit. Yeah, my, my uh, addict or my, this yeah. is my, my monster, yeah. my, you know, we got to yeah. name it, as, right. as they say. And so that's a way of depersonalizing actually the energy, um, um, the polarities, uh, maybe even the paradoxes within that person, within ourselves that we contend with every day. When I could put it as the addict, I don't, I can, I can put it as a distance from me, at but a distance from me. Is it healthy? I mean, that's. Oh, I, I think it works for some people. Yeah. I, but I, what you're saying is that it just doesn't, I, I'm it's saying not a one size fits all. It's not a one size fits all. And in and it, and it, and, and narrative studies, it, um, most of the way that that trajectory and the goodness of those stories are predicated on are mainly have been around men's stories. Um, and so I'm, I was interested in what are stories that are left out? Um, and maybe that's a theme of my life of what's, what's being left out, it seems like it, right? <laughs> who gets to choose what's put in and why, <laughs> you know, please, we got to return to that. For a second. <laughs> I want to geek out with you for a second. Yeah. Here. I, I, I got to get all kind of academic -y okay. and I, I'm interested in going back to the human growth piece mm. and what are your influences? What are you learning? What, oh, yeah. what's informing all that education? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about the ingredients yeah. here. Yeah. So um, there, Dan McAdams, who was up at the Foley Center, it still is, I think he may have retired, but up at the Foley Center, who's an Ericksonian mm -hmm. scholar, mm -hmm. um, uh, um, really uh, talks about redemptive narratives. I was really interested in, um, I read a book by a guy named Shad Maruna, who is a world-class um, criminologist and just a world-class man, a human well, being. Uh, quickly, when we say Ericksonian, we're talking about it's a stage development. De yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and so out of those stages of development, there is then mapped over that stories, 
right? So how do you how do you connect the stages of your own development to the story past in your own identity? And as an example, what we're talking about here is something I've said a lot of times, and I'll, I, I put a disclaimer next to it, but Erickson, that first stage is trust and mistrust. Yes. And so the idea is that in that particular, so zero to two, you've got to be treated in a way that helps you understand your value, help, you know, helps you understand your value, helps you feel you're valuable, gets your needs met. It regulates everything from your nervous system to your yes. sense of, you know, who's going to show if I cry, my caregiver comes. And the idea here is that if that is resolved in a healthy way, I can kind of continue in a healthy way to yeah. the next stage. But if I don't have that, then I'll stay in some way stuck. stuck. And yeah. so when I'm 30, and I'm in a relationship and everything is perfectly fine, but I perceive there to be some abandonment or some issue, I will turn into a tantruming child and do harmful things potentially yeah. uh, to sell for other. Yeah. Okay. Th that is a, I don't want to say it's a cartooned way, of, but that is like, yeah, that's yeah. a, yeah, there's a Simple, lot. Simple, easy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Um, what, so what, um, what a narrative uh, kind of um, traditional modern ways of understanding narrative is how do you connect those stages and those stories together? How do you make sense um, of, of the way you understand uh, um, your own life? Um, and so um, well, can we go back to the question you asked? What were you asking? Well, I just you, riff on, oh, on that. Yeah. On, on those folks. Cause uh, I, okay. I'm, I'm just curious. I want to kind of, take advantage of you yeah. being here, you know? Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and as my own curiosities about yeah. like, cause you're, I, I guess it didn't click to me, human growth and your, you know, I certainly read this stuff and the kind of the redemptive narrative, which I want to get to, but let's look at some of the ingredients oh, yeah. that are creating that part of you that helped you then discover what that, the opportunity for you yeah. to use that. Yeah. So, so in the in the midst of this, I have this uh, my um, my advisor um, um, who, named Nancy Bell, who's just brilliant feminist scholar, um, that really began to push back against some of the ways that I was seeing the world, and 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 was asking also these questions of um, of this one size fits all narrative. And, and why is it, it exists like this? Have, and she began to, you know, press me to read other people um, outside of, uh, of, of, you know, of that, that literature. Thunk it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm reading Hermas. So I'm reading much more continental philosophy. Um, and that pushes me to uh, read um, theologians that are embedded within continental philosophy. Right. So I'm, I'm uh, in my dissertation, or at least my, my PhD, I'm just, I just became this kind of, I just read every, I just loved reading, you know, mm. I just, I would lock myself away and, you know, I look, I must've looked like that, you know, the, the, the mad scientist from, uh, <laughs> you know, back to the future coming out of my room. Sometimes I was like, wow, <laughs> that's crazy. You know, shit, man. <laughs> that's some good shit in there. <laughs> I'd be in there eight, 10 hours, you know, my wife would be like, my God, yeah. walk that off. Yeah. Will you? <laughs> uh, my wife can definitely, uh, I was reading about Shadow at the time, and yeah. I think I would come down just like, fuck. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> She's going, go hug a tree. Yeah, go get it, get put, out. Touch some bushes and walk through the grass or something, man, you're freaking me out. <laughs> yeah. So I'm reading all of this stuff that's really blowing um, um, 
my mind in terms of my paradigm, the way I see the world as is, right? Mm-hmm. So it really is perception. The world that you see is through the perceptual lens of, 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 of the way that we develop our community, society, culture, the epic that we live in, all era that we live in, all these things go to the way that we see the world. And then when we're giving something that alters the world in a paradigm shifting way, right? Um, that, that says the world is other actually, or could be other, right? It opens up space and de- it really it, in ways oh. it destabilizes the world. Right. And so I think that this liminal space of having to go through deep destabilization is actually really important. As the unknown. I mean, that's the, the, the world being the unknown. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so, so me actually losing faith, becoming an atheist, which I still retain deeply, mm-hmm. um, is, is deeply helpful to me. It's, ve- it was, it's important to look at this all of religious structures, all of economic structure, the, the world I was given to as, as being real and then realizing, oh, this stuff is constructed and we are complicit in its construction, right? Now, I don't know what to do about that, but to understand that um, that was, um, was the beginning of the ending for me in some ways, right? Um, and it was, a, it was a long, slow descent and then uh, the reconstruction of the way I understand faith and life and all those things have been an ongoing process. Well, then let's return to the Jesus question, because yeah. I'm with that in mind. Here you are, like not only deconstructing the stories you were handed when you were a kid, mm. you're be, because you're deconstructing the story arc and narrative of Christianity that I was given. There's pro, there's so this idea of say um, um, omnipotence, right? I mean that, that's a modern construct. That, that 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 and I can understand both the cultural psychological aspects of that. But if I can begin to look at the life of Jesus and oh, oh, uh, in divinity and say God's love is God's power. That's the only power that God has is love. But how do you bypass, you know, even when you say that? It's 208. How are you doing? I'm good. I probably have to pick kids up by 3, so 2.30. How about, okay, good, 2.30, good. Um, how do you, <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, yeah, the Jesus question here is when, when, when people come to you and say, oh, wait, because, yeah, here we go. Okay, that seems to me like it's it can be kind of exclusive, right? I mean, because almost like when you say the word Jesus, you've got to have like a, a, a 37 footnotes of what the hell you're talking about because <laughs> everybody's got right. shit right. there, you know? Sure. Like, sure. So when you say, you know, walking the path of Jesus, you know, <laughs> you know, 14 people, their hair stands on the back of their neck, you yeah. know, 17 are like, ah, and then a bunch, you know, yeah. you've got reactions all the yeah. way. No, right. So, right. So how do you speak about this highly controversial signifier and figure? Yeah. And 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 also, as you do, right, have this very open like yeah. and inviting presence. Yeah. Uh, you know, both literally at the doors of your church and also the you know just your energy. I mean, if yeah. people, I'm sure they're completely gathering the fact that you're an open guy. <laughs> yeah. How do you do that? How do you how do you help people 
I, I guess some of that is how do you not do that? How does love not open you up? How does love not make there be a place where there is no one that stands outside, right? So it is not a belief system that makes me right. So m most of uh, religion and conversion is to you're converted to an idea, right? So when I want to convert you, what I, really what I want to do is talk you into a more elegant way of thinking. The right way of thinking. It's my, my way. way of thinking. My way. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a lot more elegant than your way. Yeah, because well, I'm, I'm going to pull you up out of this It's shit, a presupposition that is bullshit. I'm yeah. not here to talk you. I mean, right, if, if really the fact is that I'm claiming who Jesus is based on the fact that I was born in this story, right? I've learned a lot uh, from um, my Buddhist brothers and sisters. I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm much more than a hyphenated religious, you know, whether that's Buddhism slash atheist slash, you know, um, mystic slash you know, I, whatever those things are, those things now are much more fluid for me. The central figure in that for me still, um, because of my upbringing and because of where I was born, it makes sense to me. It's the story I was born in, right? Um, and I can either, um, I can either smash it and say it's bullshit, or I can say something's here. There's something about this that I, I need to look at again as, um, um, as an archetype for the way that I might structure meaning in my own life. Well, so to, to even revisit what we were saying a little while ago, the arc of the Jesus narrative fits into that structure we were talking about earlier. I mean, it's just kind of the hero and he's... Yeah, that's one way of looking at it, right? What's I mean, another? The other way is, and there's a really, I mean, we are married to these kind of theologies of ascent that's going to get us out and get us beyond, and we're going to become away. You know, I, I mean, I look at, at the narrative of Jesus as a slow descent, right? It wasn't until Constantine that we like, we patch all this shit together and, and we, we make an economic and other worldly system out of it, right? And we, you've got, you've got a, You've got a backwatered um, um, Jewish rebel, in a sense, right? That at his death, nobody's around for. Failure. That's basically upending um, and pushing against a system of economic, social, sexual, um, patriotic pressure um, and says there's another way to imagine um, um, divinity in the world. We can imagine our social relationships differently. So he gathers the most vulnerable, whether that's children, whether that's folks on the outside that you should not be touching because of some physical malady or disease. He walks into places where no good quote unquote person would be and is scandalized by that because there is no good or bad people. There are people. Right. So I I see this person as a person that I, if I turn the volume down of the history of of what this person has become and I watch what this person does. Well, this person shows up in neighborhoods that I think maybe have something to say to us, you know, um, so to follow. Is an interesting. It's what I do with my feet. It's where I'm going to spend my days. It's, it's the relationships I want to open my life to. 
that 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 story is deeply in my gut, right? Um, and like um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, it could be real but not true. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, right? Because I think that's oftentimes we we get into the rational, yeah. You know, because what what now I can envision somebody saying, well, let's talk about the historical Jesus, you know, and and I think given by what you just said is, you know, whatever. Yeah, I can have that argument. I'm not really um, that's not where the juice is for me. The, the, the question is, how am I living my life? What's um, What content, what structures, what ways am I perceiving the the world? And is that um, um, if Antonio Machacado, this uh, Italian, a Spanish poet, says all of Jesus's words can be summed up in one word: "Wake up." And if that's what therapy is to do, if that's what, if that's what when I, you know, when I read Hollis's work, if it's about waking up, then a religion, a spirituality, is to wake me up into the reality of my own life and the life that and the world that I'm in and any or all religion that puts me asleep I, I don't know I'm, I'm, I'm leery of um, huh. so to debate on this yeah. do you need a narrative like that no absolutely not no sure. I, I'm telling you that this is how I'm making sense of my own life um there are a thousand there <laughs> there are as many narratives as there are people right and so um, my work is not to talk someone in to a particular narrative well then you're, you're you're letting people in on your personal theology oh absolutely yeah which may, i may lose my job after this podcast i'm so sorry <laughs> 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 because because I and this is I think my theology like life is contextual. It's it's contestable. It's um it's not a single pathway forward. It's not a paint by numbers. Yeah. You know, if if um if the if the Jesus I see in the gospels is one that is questioning power, is drawn towards um vulnerability in his own life, gives his life um, um, for that sake of love in the world. Well, that's, and then we somehow create a system to where it makes me secure and safe. Like faith, if Kierkegaard's right, if faith is a leap, is a leap into an abyss, it ought to scare the shit out of us, <laughs> right? The leap ought to actually scare us. I don't know if you've ever stood, like I hate heights. I mean, you, my kids make fun of me. When we go to these hotels and there's these like open, you know, and you're and they're looking over and I'm grabbing them, pulling them back. And they're like, Dad, I'm going to jump. And I have this like, like, like panic attacky feeling faith. If that doesn't like there's a leap. Right. And I have a I have a feeling that we're all born into a leap. Life is a leap that that, that is the terror that Jung and Freud talk about. That, that's the primordial terror that, that then our psychopathologies, our religions, our relationships, the way that I try to buffer all of that, right? Um, 
What I'm saying is that faith ought to put us closer to that, not take us away from that. Um, and so, so, uh, so I think, well, first things first, let me, mm. let me try to inoculate real quick. Mm. Um, if for any reason you get fired for this podcast, <laughs> that would mean that the church in which you're a part is doing the exact thing we've been talking about the entire time, right? Mm. It's the structure. Yeah. You know, I, and, and I also doubt that that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I also, I also am in a, in a, in a place of deep generosity where these, where I can wrestle with the loss of my own faith and, 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 and atheism. Mm -hmm. That's important that I hold on to that. I, it's deeply I important. Tell you, I, I just, I don't know that I want to pay attention to somebody who hasn't done a lot of that wrestling. Yeah. That, I think that that's for me. And this is what brings up another thing I, I wanted to get into for me to have somebody that hasn't gone through periods of doubt, and really struggled through it. I, I don't know that yeah. that's the person to be taught because because of course the person without doubt is the one with absolute certainty, and that's where the power goes. Yeah. And what I want to say about I think my own narrative or my own um, experience of doubt is not that I've moved beyond that, and I'm in a much much better place now. I mean, like uh, that created something inside of me that is irreducible as well. That is that is um, that is there that talks with me in my I'm always with it, right? And so these these this dialogical collection of voices in me that is making up my life um, is how do they um, how do they how are they singing? What am I listening to? What are those things about? Right. And so sometimes the type of religion that we're giving can so far um, uh, monologize, you know, they can be uh, they can be this one voice that is to make meaning of all the other. And I think that's what I um, find highly contestable. Well, and that's it's, it's, of course, the opposite of what anybody would seek in religion that yeah. that kind of. Uh, I don't know. It just seems like you almost have to do some kind of philosophical reversal. Yeah. And, and certainly theologians play with this right yeah. around the Gnostic tradition of like, you know, the snake was right. Yeah. You know, let's look at yeah, that. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. You know, as opposed to that, I'm with you, that, that ascent, the, the, kind yeah. of the mythology of the ascent. And, but if we can descend into our own humanity, I, I think that's the place where that's the only place where, um, reality exists, right? And so there's a there's a um, there's a Latin American theologian by the name of John Sabrino who I, I love um, that that um, really is a liberation theologian that's lived in El Salvador all of his life. That was uh, one of the only ones in 1982 um, when was it 87 when uh, those number of priests were murdered um mm. he was out of the country at the time i mean his his understanding is that we have to give ourselves to the reality of the world and and to be very careful of anything that would take us out of that reality whether that's economics or religion or relationship or addiction those things that we have to come to terms with right and so the story of my own religious upbringing i have to contend with you know i had to I had to reject it and i and it stands off at the corner of my um my life 
um, begging to be dealt with. And so I can either like um, addictive disorders in my own life, shove it to the, the side, but at some point I have to befriend it. I have to make friends with my enemies along the way. And so this very religious structure that was an enemy, I have to, I have to either um, um, deconstruct it totally to where it's nothing, which I've done <laughs> in some ways. And in other ways, I have to turn and tend and befriend it as a part of the story I grew up with. Yeah. Not as the only story that exists. It's just mine. And, and I'm trying to make meaning in this being the most alive person I can be in the city of Houston in 2018, raising three boys, falling in love with a woman that I've been together with for over 25 years now, in a, in a, in a world that wants to make good and bad people and right and wrong people and all of its bullshit, right? Um, so how do you make meaning out of that? <laughs> uh. Well, speaking of your three boys, huh. let's, um, <laughs> let's start to close it out. All right. Maybe it's part of my irreverence. I like to finish off when people basically call out a political, economic, religious structure and they just call it all bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> And still, and still we have to make decisions every day and live yes. and, and be alive in it. You know, this is, this is the nothing can save you. Nothing. Right. Um, and so that's how will I live my life in a world where nothing can save me? Now what? Now what? How do I love? How do I give? How do I use my money? How am I used? How will I be used? <laughs> You know, all of that is then the question, right? We're all fall. We're all born in a fall, in a, in a deep leap, right? Nothing can save us. So, what do we do? Okay, so uh, go fucking be at peace, man. <laughs> <laughs> Lord be with you. <laughs> also with you, motherfucker. <laughs> Now I make food for thought Fresh like the air you snort I drop jewels, little nuggets of wisdom Seeds that keep growing Pay my debt to society so no more owing Now it's showing and proving Keep the body moving Exercising the mind is scientifically proven To increase your lifeline, strengthen your heart Eat fish, that brain food will get you smart Yoga, deep meditation tactics You know good than just practice Cause practice makes perfect Stop burying the lies and bring the truth to the surface Money is the root to all evil That cash rule will have you out there Looking like a damn fool That's the devil's bait, the almighty dollar tree Will have your mind full by technology Make the right choice, no need for an apology Light is the 
one Reach one, just knowledge the wisdom Can't figure right from wrong It's a tough decision, my vision is light So come to me when yours black out Follow the footprints as I lay the tracks out He's a righteous God, I want the best for mankind Navigate through this war without blowing a landmine My life shine from the east, my brother Verbally I spit, I'm a beast, my brother March through the blackness, search for the ray of lights Don't walk barefoot through the grass Cause that's where the snake strikes Protect your neck, evil lurks in the shadows Darkness is best 